Well, good morning, Harvest. If you have been watching us through this Advent season, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the idea of hope. We have talked about love. And this morning, I'm going to be talking to you on the subject of joy, kind of as we prepare for Christmas later this week. Psalm 1611 says this. It says, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And it's interesting, even as I read that verse, I think there's a caution. I don't want us to consider Jesus or our walk with Jesus a path to joy. It's not one path amongst many that lead us to a destination that is joy. In Jesus' presence is the fullness of joy. He is the destination that we are looking to arrive at. And the question that I would have even as we start today's message is simply this. Is your life, as you look at it, even through this uh, odd, unusual um, troubling year of 2020, can you look back over the last 12 months and say, yes, my life is on a path that is leading me towards joy. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes 2. And I know some of you are like, come on, David, it's Christmas. Uh, Luke 2, there's shepherds and uh, angels and mangers and stables. Aren't, aren't we supposed to be in Luke 2 um, for Christmas? And uh, it's my goal to get there by the end of this message if we don't run out of time. But I want to start in Luke 2 because I want to build an argument that Jesus is the destination of all of our joy. The first point of this message is simple. There's only two points. The first one is this. We need a Savior. And as we turn to Ecclesiastes 2, we're looking at a biography written by one of David's sons, Solomon. And Solomon is king. He is the son of David. And when David dies, he becomes king of Israel. But he also has um, extraordinary wealth. He has peace in his kingdom. So that means he has a ton of time on his hands. He has been blessed by God with incredible wisdom. So he takes all of his wisdom, all of his time, all of his passions, all of his resources, and he spends them in the pursuit of finding meaning in life, finding something that will sustain him, something that will bring him joy. If there's something that um, he can touch, he wants to touch it. If there's an aroma that he can smell, he's going to smell it. If there's something with taste, he wants to taste it. And he pours all of his efforts and energy into this pursuit of joy. And chapter two is kind of a, a diary uh, explaining the different um, paths that he went down in his pursuit of joy. The first thing that he pursues is pleasure or hedonism or partying. In, in essence, what he does is he goes off to college and uh, joins a fraternity, if that helps some of you relate. And uh, he enjoys uh, more than his fair share of alcohol. He indulges in prescription and non-prescription drugs. He uses um, and smokes medicinal medicines. He does everything in his power to pursue whatever he can in the party scene. But he goes on to tell us that after a while, this leaves him unsatisfied. The parties become stale. They become repetitive. Uh, it loses its excitement. And, and I think we can all agree that though that season of being in a fraternity might be fun for a season, but the reality is there's not a lot as sad in this world as a 50-year-old frat boy. So he turns his attention away from partying. And then what he does is he pours himself into um, industry, into his profession. He decides that he is going to pursue uh, uh, success, uh, pursue wealth. And in that pursuit, uh, he becomes incredibly successful. 
He, he accumulates more wealth than any other man alive during his lifetime. Um, it takes him 14 years to build his own house. And it's interesting in verse 11 of chapter 2, when he is done being a success in business and he has pursued that avenue or that path towards joy, he summarizes it this way. He says in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, this too became boring and predictable. In verse 12, he says, there's nothing that I'm able to accumulate. There's nothing that I'm able to accomplish that hasn't already been accomplished, accomplished by someone before me. And I think we've got to be careful that we don't fall into this illusion that more of the very things that haven't satisfied us, if we can just accumulate more of them, somehow they will satisfy us when we take possession of them. In the middle of pursuing partying and pursuing his business career, he is accumulating for himself women and wives. We're, we're told that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. So I would just say that he denies himself um, nothing as it relates to sexual and sensual experimentation and pleasure. And again, he says, this doesn't work. It's like chasing the wind. And then finally, he pursues wisdom. And in his pursuit of wisdom, he says, listen, I'm going to leave the partying lifestyle behind. I'm going to think deeply about life. I'm going to consider my steps. I'm going to live as a man trying to understand why I do the things I do and why life works the way that it does. But he finds that there's a problem when you live your life and you think too deeply. He says in verse 15 of chapter 2, he said, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Here's what he says. Even if you live wisely, you die just like the fool. You can accomplish everything. You can live wisely. But at the end of the day, the, the, the fate of the wise man and the fate of the fool is exactly the same. You can have all of uh, your wisdom. You can accomplish so much. You can have all of these um, riches that you've accumulated, but you die like the fool. And when you die, you leave them to your kids and they might turn out to be idiots. And that's not me saying that. He says it. Look at verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil, which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. So the result of this pursuit of partying, of wisdom, of accumulation of stuff, of success in business, all of it has not led him to the destination where he hoped to arrive, with something that would sustain him, something that would give him lasting joy. He says in verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. So, so let me try to explain to you what's going on with Solomon right now. He is experiencing what I would call uh, the truth of diminishing returns. The more we accumulate of things outside of Jesus Christ that we think will satisfy us, the less they have the ability to satisfy us. And the tragedy of this story is, as Solomon writes this, he's probably in his 30s. And if I took the time, which I won't, but if I took the time this morning to just list off for you, in my lifetime, the amount of people, celebrities, athletes, famous people who have achieved a great deal of success very early in their lives and where that usually leads, you will understand this idea of the law of diminishing returns. 
that, that sadly, often when we get what we want at an early stage of life, and, and we've basically tasted of all the best that life can offer, we find ourselves disillusioned, disappointed, and despair can take root. Solomon says, no matter what I do, no matter what I accomplish, no matter what riches I accumulate, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm soon going to be forgotten. And, and just to kind of prove that this is true, here's, here's, a, here's a question that I would ask you. Uh, just take a moment for me and just tell me the name or as you're sitting with someone else in your family as you're watching this, just think of the name. Can you remember the name? Do you know the name of your great, great grandfather? You got it? My guess is most of you don't know the name of your great-great-grandfather. And if you do, it's only because you studied Ancestry.com and you looked up your family tree. But the question I would have, if you know the name, and I don't think many of you would, but even if you know the name of your great-great-grandfather, tell me what kind of man he was. Was he funny? Did he, did he have a temper? Was he a hard worker? Did he enjoy athletics? Was he an outdoorsman? See, the reality is, because we can't even remember our great-great-grandfather, that proves to us this point, that about 75 or 80 years from now, most of us will be completely forgotten. That's the autobiography of Solomon, the son of David. Um, Merry Christmas. Ecclesiastes 2, what a wonderful Christmas passage. I thought it was really fitting for Christmas 2020. Don't, don't you agree? I took you to Ecclesiastes 2, um, because I wanted to create a contrast. We, we've looked at the biography of um, David's son Solomon, but I want to look for a moment at another one of David's sons. We read in Matthew 1, 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If the first point of this message was we need to say a savior, the second point is simply this. Jesus is our savior. During Jesus' earthly ministry and life, he had a best friend. And that best friend, his name was John. And, and John was one of the disciples. He was one of the 12 disciples, but even more than that, he was one of Jesus' inner three. He was one of the closest companions of Jesus. As John writes his gospel or his account of Jesus' life, uh, he constantly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at John and he entrusted his mother Mary into John's care. John was Jesus' best friend. And John lived a life that could not be in more total contrast to the life that Solomon experienced. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. And in Revelation 1, we find John. He is no longer a young man. Um, he is in the later stages of his life. He is probably in his mid to late 80s, maybe even 90 years old. He, he is the last of the disciples to be alive. All the other disciples have died for their testimony and refusing to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. Only John remains. And John is old. He has been beaten. beaten. He has been chased. He has been hunted. And in Revelation 1, he finds himself on a rock of an island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and he is there not by choice, but we're told in Revelation 1.9 that he is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So 
also, he is alone, he is isolated, he is old, he is physically broken down. And it's interesting, if you look at Revelation 1, verse 10, it says this. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. We don't know exactly what that means, and I don't have time to develop it. But here's what I would tell you. In spite of his circumstances, and in spite of his condition, and in spite of his plight and his tribulation, John was worshiping. And his old friend Jesus meets him there. For the rest of chapter 1, we see that John is reunited and once again sees the very Jesus that he saw when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the glorified Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus tells John to write seven letters, to transcribe for Jesus seven letters to seven churches. And as we turn to Revelation 4, John is called up to heaven. Again, it says that he is in the spirit. And chapter 4 is Jesus giving his old friend John a tour of the throne room of God. But I want to focus our attention on Revelation chapter 5 and what's recorded there. Look at Revelation 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to follow along with me. Look at Revelation 5, the first verse. John writes this. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Okay, just stop there for a minute. John sees someone seated on the throne in the throne room of heaven. Who is that? It's God the Father. And he says, he sees in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back. The Greek word there is Babylon. It's where we get our word book, but there is a scroll. And what's interesting about this scroll in particular is that there is writing on both sides of the scroll. That was unusual. Typically, when a scroll was prepared to be written on, one side would be smooth and the scribe would write on the smooth side. But, but on rare occasions and on special occasions, um, a scroll would be prepared so that it can be written on on both sides. And typically, those scrolls indicated that it was a legal contract. The, the details of the contract would be on one side, and a, and a small uh, synopsis of the contract would be written on the outside. So there is this scroll or this contract in the right hand of God the Father, it's written on within and on the back, and it is sealed with seven seals. Now, when you think of a seal on a scroll, it typically was impressed into wax by a signet ring, and only the person who had the power and the authority to open that scroll was allowed to break that seal and to read its contents. This particular scroll has seven seals. It is a very important contract or document. And I believe because of the fact that it appears to be a legal contract and because of what happens when the seventh seal is opened. The first six seals are opened in Revelation 6 and the seventh seal is broken in Revelation chapter 8 and then with, at the seventh seal, seven trumpets are sounded. And at the seventh trumpet of the seventh seal, we hear these words, in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says this, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I, I believe the best 
understanding of this is to understand that what's held in the right hand of God the Father is a contract. It is the title deed to all of creation. And in verse 2, it says this, And I saw a mighty angel. Now, I'm not sure why John said mighty angel. I'm not sure there's wimpy angels. But he says mighty angel here. I think he'll kind of explain why he says that in a minute. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? That, that word worthy there brings to mind a scale and weights. Who has the weight? Who has the authority to open the scroll and to break its seals? Look at verse three. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. All people from all ages, in all periods of time, no one was found worthy. No angel, not this mighty angel, he is unworthy to open the scrolls. John is there, he is simply ignored. Now, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived, but I would look through the list of men who have lived throughout all time, and I think John, the disciple, Jesus' best friend, he makes the top ten. So when the call goes out that no one was found worthy, understand, John is right there. Even John is not worthy. See, we're all lightweights. And what's required in this moment is a heavy weight, someone who is worthy, who has the weight to open the scroll and to look into it. Look at verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The big question this morning is simply this. Where would we be without Christmas? How dark would this world be if the light of the world had never come? Where would we be without Christmas? If we had no Savior, if there was no Messiah, the best that life has to offer is exactly what we just saw described by the first of David's sons. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, futility, no path that leads to joy. And whatever taste of hope or love or joy or peace you have in this lifetime is a mere crumb. It is like a drop of water to a man who is dying of thirst. Where would we be without Christmas? We would be left with nothing that could satisfy. It's interesting, the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, says, I began to weep loudly, describing John's response. The New American Standard Version says that he wept greatly. That speaks to the intensity of his crying. The New King James Version says that he wept much, that it went on and on, that it was enduring. The New International Version says that John wept and wept. This is a picture of unrestrained grief. Where would we be? without Christmas. Look at verse five. And one of the elders said to John, to me, weep no more. <laughs> Those words, weep no more, they, they bring to mind some words that were uttered to shepherds on a hill outside of Bethlehem by a host of angels where the angel told the shepherds, fear not. Look what it says. It says, weep no more. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In Luke 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be to all peoples. For unto you this is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring to Christ, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I'm so thankful for Christmas because where would we be without Christmas? Where would we be if Jesus Christ had not come and conquered. So as we think about Christmas, as we prepare for that this week, I just ask you this question. At the end of 2020 and the, and the year that we've been through, as we approach Christmas, what are, what are the things that you're focusing on? In response to the fact that Jesus came, he's this baby in the manger who is prepared to go to battle to take on God's wrath so that we can once again be reconciled, be called children of God, that we can know and experience to joy. To joy. What's our response? I'll give you two things. Here's the first one. And we got there. It's from Luke 2. First thing we got to do is we got to get to Jesus. In Luke 2, 15, after the angels had went away, it says this, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. See, when we understand where we would be without Christmas, when we hear the angels proclaim, fear not or weep no more, our only response is to get to the source of true joy. It's to get to Jesus. I don't have any other path. If, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I don't have any other path that I can point you to that I believe in this entire world that can lead you to lasting joy, which is why we need to get to Jesus. And once we get to Jesus, we need to bend the knee. We need to worship. Revelation 5.9 says this. After Jesus took the scroll from the right hand of God the Father, it says this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy, you have the weight, you have the authority. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? What makes him worthy? What gives him the authority to do this? It goes on and says, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. May I suggest to you that there is nothing that you can acquire, that you can accomplish or achieve that has the weight to demand your worship. But when we choose to worship Jesus and what he's accomplished and what he was willing to do and to sacrifice to acquire and to ransom us, when we consider those things, we experience lasting joy. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the 
throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels cry out in response to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Everything that Solomon pursued to like throw it at his feet. It's meaningless. It's worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. And it goes on in verse 13. Listen to what it says. And I heard every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. So every creature on earth, every creature in heaven, every creature under the earth and in the sea. That's everybody. Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, that's worship. And my question, church, is why would we wait till then to give ourselves to worshiping the only thing that can give us lasting joy? It's only in his presence that there is fullness of joy. And please tell me, church, that in this difficult season where we have tasted tribulation in 2020, that we choose not to worship or that our heart has drifted from worship solely because we can't gather. Where would we be without Christmas? We would be lost, we would be hopeless, and there would be no path that would lead to our joy. But praise be to our Savior, a baby in a manger, given so that we can know fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. And I thank you even for this contrast between two sons of David. And Father, we become easily distracted by other things that we chase, believing that if we can just acquire those things, they'll give us joy. Father, forgive us for taking our eyes off you. Father, today we, we praise you because of what you've accomplished on our behalf for us. Father, let us not lose the true meaning of Christmas, Christmas and the busyness of this season. It's in the name of your Son, to whom all praise and glory and honor and power and blessing belong that we pray. Amen.